Well, hello there, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, episode 321. Normally, we're a panel discussion where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion and the events that have taken place in the previous weeks, and we head down various rabbit holes. But I decided a while ago that I needed to mix it up a bit and every second week do a little monologue where I talk about a topic of interest. It's proven to be harder than I thought it would be. Not easy just to sit on your own and just rant about things and keep it interesting. And anyway, I'm going to give it a crack on this occasion, see how we go. This is actually take two because I did one and then for some reason the power went out in this house and tripped and I kept most of my recording but it, it totally threw me off and I thought, oh, I wasn't happy with it. So I'm starting again anyway. There we go. We're going to talk about democracy and power and some ideas relating to that. And, well, the reason why is because, number one, I saw an article in the Rationalist magazine called The Rationale, I think it's called. It was by uh, Carrick Ryan in Defence of Democracy. And he wrote a few things which I just sort of had problems with. And also, just recently, the USA has conducted a summit for democracy, which I think is the height of hypocrisy myself. And I think what annoyed me in Carrick's article was to do with terminology and and the idea that we get confused between democracy and capitalism and market economies and the benefits that flow from one, assuming that they are necessarily tied in with the other. So so what I'll do, in my first one, I really gave a blow-by-blow description of Carrick's essay, and I'm not going to do that this time. I'm just going to tell you what the general um, ideas were and, and just deal with them, try and make it more interesting. So here we go. So in his essay, he says... He said, basically, democracy leads to countries that are better places to live in. This is because they have growing economies which grow because of creative destruction. In democracies, innovation forces power structure adaption. But in non-democratic countries, the powerful are able to suppress sort of newcomers, challenges. Just look at history. The more democratic a state, the more successful it is. And democracies give us individual freedom, which other systems don't allow. And our democracies are not perfect, but rather than abandon democracy as an ideology, we should fight to improve it. I think that's a fair summary of of what the article said. Now, what I want to say in in my response and talking about democracy is that democracy is a relatively small factor in determining the success or failure of many countries. You've got to remember, most countries are relatively small and when a big player, a big bully, wants to bully them, they can and it's not really going to matter whether they're a democracy or not. We live in the age of the American empire and in my view, if you get in the road of American self-interest, you're stuffed, no matter how democratic you are. On the other hand, if you can aid American self-interest, you'll thrive no matter how authoritarian you are. So 
To me, for a lot of players in the world, the success of particularly smaller countries isn't so much whether they are democratic or authoritarian, it's whether they're on the good or bad side of the American empire. Now, when I refer to American self-interest, I mean the American military-industrial complex, you know, the, the oligarchy that's running the place. So I think it's misleading to connect democracy with capitalism, prosperity, innovation, market economies, personal freedom, health and happiness, as if these things are all linked by some rule of nature. They all come hand in hand. So it sort of annoyed me that the rationalists published this essay. I mean, not annoyed me. I mean, it's good that essays are published, and I guess this is my response. And and I know that there's a certain view around the world that, you know, a guy like Steven Pinker, that everything's okay. Western liberal capitalist democracies have served us well and will continue to do so, provided we keep them in good shape. And... I really think rational Australians and others need to just sort of carefully look at that story and see if it's really true or not. So how power truly operates in the world, I don't think is how it was painted in Carrick's article. So uh, as I said, the truth is that traditionally powerful countries, for me, they have exploited either other smaller countries or their own resources or their own working class, or the world financial system. And the opportunities for further exploitation have run out and a reckoning is imminent. Capitalism requires growth and those sorts of fake growth options have run out. So I agree with Carrick that democracy is in trouble. I agree... I think to rescue it, we need to understand why it's in decline. And I'm going to refer to a book by Wendy Brown. And titled the book is In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. And according to Wendy, we can blame neoliberalism. So she says that neoliberalism was a political and moral project that put individual liberty above all else and it demonised democracy because it demonised any idea of the state having the authority to interfere in individuals' lives. So neoliberalism poo-pooed the state, the commons, the social good, elevated the individual as primary concern and really from the neoliberal point of view democracy is a bit dangerous it it can allow the majority to limit the freedom of an individual if enough people vote for it and from a neoliberal point of view they would rather personal freedom and would and would put up with an authoritarian undemocratic government if it was leaving individuals alone to do whatever they wanted to. Uh, that would be the sort of neoliberal approach. And that has permeated our culture. And that erosion of the common good and society, the elevation of the individual, has sowed the seeds of doubt of, for democracy. That's her analysis. And I tend to agree with it. So... 
if we want to fix the decline in democracy, we're going to need to restore the social, the commons, the idea of society. All right. So just a few introductory ideas on democracy, its place in the scheme of things. What is democracy? Essentially power to the people where everybody's treated equally. They get a vote and a say in how the society operates and it's not dictated to them by a small clique of unaccountable people. So a small clique of People running a place is an oligarchy. If they've got lots of money, which is normally the case, it's a plutocracy. You could have an aristocracy where it's you know kings and queens, where it occurs via hereditary sort of means. And the other options would be sort of tyrannies and dictatorships. And interesting, Plato, the Greek philosopher, uh, ranked sort of oligarch and plutocracies and and aristocracies as preferable to democracies and only just above and ranked democracy only just above sort of a tyranny so that was his view of the best ways of operating a society so the, the other idea that we need to get across is that you know authoritarian states can can conduct liberal societies where they don't care what you do get divorced gay people can marry, have abortions, you know, do whatever you like. It, it's possible for an unelected authoritarian ruling group or person to, to have a fairly liberal interpretation of individual preferences and it, just that you can't vote them out. You know, it, it, it doesn't have to go hand in hand. It often does, but it doesn't have to. The other thing is just thinking about capitalism and, and market economies you know, they're, they're different things and authoritarian regimes can operate not only market economies but also capitalist economies. I mean, if you look at modern-day China, there's a lot of people getting very rich running capitalist enterprises. That, and, and capitalism, you have to understand, is quite different to a, a market economy. So people... People tend to think, oh, you can't have socialism or telling people what to do in terms of a command economy and how many loaves of bread to bake and all that sort of stuff. You, you know, that's different. A, a command economy where the central government body tells people what to do and how often to do it, that's a sort of a command economy versus a market economy where the market through the forces of supply and demand works things out. So you can have an authoritarian regime that runs a market economy. Capitalism is really a recent invention. It's only occurred in the last, you know, 400 years or so with the, you know, industrial revolution. So where where basically individuals were able to accumulate such wealth that they could live off the proceeds of their wealth. So most people who consider themselves capitalists are not capitalists. Even if you own a small business, if you're working in it every day because you have to, you're just another wage slave like the rest of us. It's just that you've got more pressure and accounting problems than the rest of us. You're not a capitalist. You're a believer in a market economy, but you're not actually a practicing capitalist unless you've accumulated such wealth you don't have to work at all. All right, so enough of the sort of, sort of definition sort of things. 
what does Carrick say in the article? He says, well, democracy leads to countries that are better places to live in. And in support of that argument, he said, what did he say? He said, look at the, there's an index he came across, which was, let me just get it straight here. The Human Development Index um, is a score given to nations based on a number of variables, such as life expectancy, education and per capita income. And Carrick says that in the top 30, all but one, Hong Kong, is a democracy. And he says, is it just pure coincidence or not? And essentially he goes on to say that, well, democracies allow for innovation and it's because of that innovation that their economies grow and that they are successful so it's no coincidence that the top third democracies it's because democracies lead to innovation which leads to growth of economies in a nutshell just want to make the point that really a lot of countries in the top 30 would be doing very well because of circumstances beyond just their, the fact that they're a democracy. I mean, if you're a former colonial power and you've accumulated massive wealth over hundreds of years from, from extracting wealth from the colonies and you've then reinvested that into modern-day enterprises, you know, that, that can have a much more to do with why you're in the top 30 than the fact that you're running a democracy. That sort of build-up of wealth through colonisation that you continue to live off is a huge factor. It might also be that the country just has itself vast resources per head of population, e.g. Australia or e.g. the Arab oil states. And there are other factors at play. If you look at that same index and you say, well, who were the big improvers in the last five years? You can actually play around with the figures and put in a spreadsheet and run them around and which ones have moved up a lot of places. And in the last five years, guess what? The biggest improver by a significant margin is China, moved up 12 places. And it's not a democracy, apparently. So what does that say then? If your argument is look at the Human Development Index and the top 30 are all democracies, but the biggest improver is, is not a democracy, what, what does that say about how the world is operating now? Also, if you're looking at the, at the top 10 improvers, China, Dominican Republic, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Thailand, Maldives, Bangladesh, Ireland, Hong Kong, Kazakhstan, Georgia. And I'll just tell you whether they are democracies or not. And in that same order, China, authoritarian, Dominican Republic, flawed democracy, Bosnia and Herzegovina, hybrid, Thailand, flawed democracy. Maldives, I couldn't see what the information was. Bangladesh, hybrid, Ireland, full democracy, Hong Kong, hybrid, Kazakhstan, authoritarian, Georgia, hybrid. So in the top 10 improvers, the only one that was a full democracy was Ireland for the last five years. So what does that say about whether you need to be a democracy to have a successful country? Maybe other things are at play here.
So my argument would be that for a lot of countries who are doing well, it's because of historical factors that they are continuing to benefit from. And if you look at countries that are doing poorly, it may not be because they're a democracy or not. There could be other factors involved that means life's not so great in those countries. And I looked at who's doing worse, who's, who's the worst performers in this democracy, in, in this sort of development. Why it came out with the figures, the worst performer was the Marshall Islands, but that was because it didn't have figures previously, so it was like a not applicable type thing. The worst performer by far dropped 44 places in five years was Venezuela, and then the second worst was Yemen and then East Timor. Denmark, Brunei, Barbados, Lebanon, Dominica and Palestine. When you look at those, do you think yeah, maybe there might be other factors beyond democracy at play here? And Venezuela is an interesting classic example, the worst performer of the lot. And, and really, if you look at Venezuela and where it appears on democracy indexes, you'll often see it appears as a terrible authoritarian state. But when you read other material, you would say to yourself, well, it's actually a democracy. So we've mentioned it before in the podcast, but Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States, created the Carter Foundation. They go around the world looking at elections in places like Venezuela and send independent people to the voting booths, looking around, checking, reporting back on whether the systems in place are truly democratic or whether the fix is on. So when Hugo Chavez was elected as the president of Venezuela, he of course was a socialist, the, Jimmy Carter said, of the 92 elections that we've monitored, I would say the election process in Venezuela is the best in the world. By way of contrast, the US election system, with its emphasis on campaign money, is one of the worst. Just recently, Venezuela had some midterm elections. So it wasn't the president, but it was other office bearers. And the Carter Centre has not yet reported on that, but I'm keeping my eye out to see what they say. But there was another group called the National Lawyers Guild who seemed to do a similar thing to what the Carter Foundation is doing. And they sent a delegation of lawyers, of guild members, to Venezuela to monitor the regional elections in November 2021. And in their report, they say they observed a balanced and transparent voting process, which voters expressed confidence in. And it goes on about how many sites they visited and the communications that they had and basically a conclusion that they were very satisfied with the conduct of the election in Venezuela and a conclusion that said, so here, overall we observed a climate of political energy grounded in an understanding that the voting day process, regardless of one's individual political ideology, functions fairly and is received as legitimate. And they then went on to criticise the US for its sanctions that it's operating. So when it comes back to, well, Carrick's argument, if you look at the uh, development index, top 30 are democracies, that seems to be more than a coincidence. It's democracies that allow innovation. Innovation allows growing economies. Well, you've got a democracy in Venezuela that's dropped 44 places. The reason is, 
even if you think it's an authoritarian state. The reason is because of the sanctions. The reason Yemen is the next country is because of a civil war that's been going on in that country with weapons supplied by the US and the UK, other democracies, to the Saudis. So, you know, it's, it's certainly the case that throughout history in Latin America, if we look at Chile with the Allende government that the US overthrew, even though it was democratically elected, they just didn't like it because it was socialist. Henry Kissinger admitted that and they were going to do whatever they could to get rid of him. So they installed an authoritarian dictator, General Pinochet. They did similar things in Guatemala, similar things in other Latin American countries. Same thing in Iran where Mossadegh was duly elected and Kermit Roosevelt, CIA agent, engineered the overthrow of his government. I mean, these are all things that are beyond... These are not disputed. These are admitted by the US in their own documents. This is not fanciful stuff. I mean, is the US a democracy if it runs around the world overthrowing democracies and installing dictators? What, how does that affect their ranking in the democracy index, I wonder? So the, the other thing that... Uh, so, of course, the sanctions are incredibly difficult on places like Venezuela and Cuba, that these people can't access products that other countries can access just because the US decides to impose sanctions. The same with Iran. I mean, there was a deal done by Obama in relation to nuclear inspections. It was Trump killed that deal and sanctions reimposed. You know, a lot of the welfare and benefit in a country, if you are cut off from the world economy by the US, you are necessarily going to plummet down the development index, whether you're a democracy or not. And, you know, on a, on a sort of a, a more macro scale, what, what happened in the 70s and 80s with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank both controlled by me, was that if countries got into trouble with their loans, loans that they probably shouldn't have been given in the first place, but once they got into trouble, it opened up uh, Pandora's box for these poor countries. Essentially, the IMF and the World Bank would agree to certain loans on the condition that these countries implement neoliberal policies, which was they had to allow global companies, multinational companies, to come in and have full access to their economies, buy whatever they wanted to. They had to sell their infrastructure publicly owned to help pay off their debts. They had to deregulate so that when those companies were in there, they could do the hell whatever they like. And they had to also, you know, lower tax as well. So they got stuck. And in particular, they were not allowed to impose their own regime of tariffs uh, to protect any industries. And what that means is that these countries are perpetually locked into poor, low-value agricultural production, and it's very difficult for them to develop a manufacturing base because manufacturing needs protection in the early days. If you decide you're going to create a car manufacturing industry or something of that like, uh, you'll never get it off the ground while other countries are allowed to, to bring in their vehicles because the local company 
necessarily needs time to get up to speed. So typically what you would do if you could is put barriers and tariffs and protections in place to give your own companies some assistance and a leg up. And they just weren't allowed to do that under these rules by the IMF and the World Bank. So they're stuck in this position and can't develop those industries. Meanwhile, places like America and other countries, America in particular, when it first kicked off, instituted those sorts of tariffs and protected its industries so that they could be created. And once they were, then they were happy to be opened up. But it's, it's terribly unfair on these countries that they're locked into, oh, well, you provide the agriculture for the world, we provide the high-tech and the services in the West. Just a shame that the high-tech and the services are the, are the big paying ones. And Germany and, and uh, Europe will provide some manufacturing as well. I mean, it's, it's very difficult for them. So they're locked into things and systems that are operating sort of a power imbalance that is operating irrespective of whether they are a democracy or an authoritarian regime. The most important thing is are they being bullied by larger forces? And that's what's often occurring to keep these countries down out of the top 30 in terms of development index. So what else did Carrick say in, in oh, innovation? Actually, let me go right back to the beginning. Yes, he says that in democracies, innovation forces power structure adaption. So where there's innovation in democracies, existing players have to adapt. But he says in non-democratic countries, the powerful are able to suppress the challenges. And, and there was a little bit there about also the propensity of democracies to produce innovation. Now, when it comes to producing innovation out of different systems, there's no reason why authoritarian regimes can't produce innovation. And there's a bit of a myth that a lot of innovation comes from the private capitalist sector. And just to sort of expose that myth, if you like. There, there's an economist, Mariana Mazzucato. She made a list of 12 key technologies that make smartphones work. So you've got on the hardware side, you've got tiny microprocessors, memory chips, solid state hard drives, liquid crystal displays, lithium-based batteries. That's hardware. Then you've got networks and software. So you've got the fast Fourier transform algorithms, You've got the internet, you've got HTTP and HTML, you've got cellular networks, global positioning systems or GPS, you've got the touch screen and you've got Siri. So that's 12 pieces of key technologies that are part of the smartphone. And most people would think, wasn't it amazing that Apple was able to invent all of those things? And uh, but when Mariana Mazzucato assembled this list of technologies and reviewed their history, she found something striking. The uh, foundational figure in the development of the iPhone wasn't Steve Jobs, it was Uncle Sam. Every single one of these 12 technologies was supported in significant ways by governments, often the American government. So... She goes on to where the origins are of these various technologies. Often they came out of the military. Often they came out of sort of government-funded universities. 
good on Apple and Jobs for putting it all together and you know, packaging it attractively. But, you know, this did not come from the private sector, those 12 inventions. It came out of the public sector. And so one could argue when it comes to innovation based on that example that perhaps an authoritarian regime is more likely to have a, a larger non-private sector and potentially, potentially more likely to produce innovation. I mean, modern companies today don't have the money for innovation spends. They just like to steal and copy off each other, basically. Anyway, so that was innovation. And also one of the other things that happens is, I mean, well, just thinking of wartime, for example. I mean, were the Russian and German scientists at the cutting edge, even though they were part of authoritarian regimes? Um, I think we could say yes. Did the Soviets put a man into orbit first? Yes. I mean, this came out of authoritarian regimes. The, the other thing that happens is if you've got an innovation in business today, in a Western liberal capitalist democracy, what you'll find is that big players put up barriers to entry to snop smaller players coming in, even if they've got a slightly better pro product. If that doesn't work, they'll buy up the smaller new player and either discard the innovation and thereby preserving their existing product. They'll utilise it, but they'll charge monopoly prices, wiping out the economic benefit for you and me and keeping the economic benefit for themselves. So you've only got to look at inequality graphs to see that even if innovation actually transfers through to product, it's not, it's not so much the countries experience the economic growth as the private enterprises are. It's probably shifting the profits offshore as a result anyway. So it's, it's not the case that innovation is so readily accepted in, in democratic capitalist societies. They have enormous, you know, you know, power comes in different forms. It's not just democratic voting power, it's size. And, and, and there's a huge advantage for big existing players in any industry. It's very difficult for small ones to, to crack through. All right, what else is going on is, what else did he say in his article before I just move on from that? I think that was the main part that I wanted to get through from that. So just in terms of the US just recently convened, this happened on December 9th and 10th, 2021, US convened a virtual summit for democracy, the first of its kind in what the State Department hopes to make an annual EVA summit focused on challenges and opportunities facing democracies, provided a platform for leaders to announce both individual and collective commitments, reforms, said, uh, reforms and initiatives to defend democracy and human rights at home and abroad. And representatives from 110 governments were invited by the USA. They didn't invite Russia. Russia and China weren't happy about that. Um, spanning the globe, many other countries invited can hardly be classified as democratic, from apartheid Israel to Brazil. Also invited was the Venezuelan op opposition activist, Juan Guaido. 
who was declared by the United States to be the interim president of Venezuela. At a democracy, nearly three years later, Guaido is still considered the interim leader of the country by the US and its allies in the region, despite a failed attempt at a military coup. His coalition falling apart and having never participated in a presidential election. That's who the US invited to its democracy summit. So beyond the list of attendees that were invited, you could ask the US itself. Is it a bit of people in glass houses shouldn't be throwing stones type of situation? So maybe the US should have used the time and effort to look at its own system. So this link to an article is a peer-reviewed Princeton University study, 2014, entitled Testing Theories of American Politics, Elites, Interest Groups and Average Citizens. And what happened was, in layman's term, they looked at policies and whether they came to fruition as actual law and they looked at whether those policies were favoured by rich people or poor people or by interest groups. In layman's terms, the policy preferences of average citizens have almost no bearing on the likelihood of a policy being adopted by the government. By contrast, the preferences of economic elites is highly correlated with the likelihood of a policy being adopted. And the study stated, the central point that emerges from our research is that economic elites and organised groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on US government policy, while mass-based interest groups and average citizens have little or no independent influence. So that looks like an oligarchy. And you have to question whether the US is actually a democracy if its citizens get little or no say in government policy. And just the other metric was only 66% of uh, Americans actually vote. And also at the Democracy Summit, the very first event at the Summit for Democracy was was titled Media Freedom and Sustainability. The bitter irony of the United States hosting a panel on media freedom is not lost on many in the international community who have expressed alarm over the US prosecution of Julian Assange for the crime of journalism that exposed the war crimes of the American empire. So the first event at the Democracy Summit was about media freedom and sustainability at at, at almost the exact same time where Julian Assange had, had lost the recent appeal bit more in this thing talks about US interference. I won't talk about that anymore. There's a couple of articles in the John Menadue blog and from the first article, the US president has urged the free world to guard against authoritarian threats to democracy, ignoring America's own history. Uh, As he promised in the election, US President Joe Biden held a virtual summit for democracy. America is back, he told the world. Again, mentions Russia and China weren't invited. Not invited, of course, were Russia, China and North Korea. Invited were South Korea and Taiwan, a democracy which is not a separate country. Um, Not included were Donald Trump's friends in the House of Saud, nor Afghanistan, Iran, Libya, Syria or Yemen. Latin American countries whose democracies produce results the US doesn't like were out. So they didn't make the cut. That was Bolivia. Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and of course Venezuela. 
and so are several Middle Eastern states, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, Jordan. Turkey, Hungary and Belarus were out. Poland was in. And there was a confusing list from Africa. For Biden, the simple choice was between democracy and authoritarianism, and he could write his own guess. But when he sought to justify it further, the rationale behind his choices got murky. Authoritarian leaders, he announced, are reaching across borders to undermine democracies, from targeting journalists and human rights defenders to meddling in elections. So he refused to allow people he thought as targeting journalists or who are meddling in elections with no self-awareness of what his own government is up to. Ah, dear. Another article from the John Menadue blog. It's not enough to preach Western values. Australia should instead try to understand those who don't agree with us. Western approaches to the world are based on certain premises which are not shared by everyone else but which we believe should be. And one of these is democracy. The writer Kevin Hogue says, Democracy is, one, is the one true universal political system. This is a moral judgment and one which some claim is the end of evolution. It is preached with the kind of missionary zeal that earlier generations showed in converting the heathen to Christianity. We do not wish to accept that democracy is just as much a matter of faith as belief in Christianity, Islam, communism or any other religion or ideology. However, there is no scientific proof that it is any different. Both democracies and autocracies have been successful and have been failures. He says some claim that democracy promotes economic development or even that it is necessary but there is no evidence to support this view. Two of the most dramatic economic miracles are the Magi Japan and China under Deng. We also tend to practice it more than preach it. So that was that article and speeches on Australian foreign policy tend to be bombastic and often demand the right to run our country as we see fit while denying the right of others to run their country as they see fit. We assume that there is something wrong with a country that chooses not to be democratic as we practice it, even if a majority of its people prefer it that way. Look, I know the plural of anecdote is not data, and, uh, but I certainly we've had some Chinese homestay boys stay with us over the years and they had lived in Australia for two, three, four years and had seen what we were up to. And in my discussions with them, when I said, well, you know, do you wish that you had a similar democratic electoral system in China? And they said, no, they're quite happy with what they had. Want to join the Communist Party, you could. I mean, there's a deal cut. The deal with the Chinese and their leaders is if the economy's going okay, then you can do what you're doing uh, is essentially it. I mean, they're happy enough, I think, with what is going on and that is as much a sort of a cultural difference as anything. And, and you know, do we do anything that different here? I mean, if the economy is booming and everybody's happy in that manner, governments just get re-elected anyway, don't they, before we swap over. So there is a bit of a imposition of, of, of a value on other people where... I mean, I obviously want the democracy in Australia. I think it's the best system for us and that's what we're used to and what we want and I think for most people and most countries it would be but different cultures have different priorities and thoughts and are in a different position to what we're in. So you can't always say that 
uh, one system is always the best for everybody. We have to at least recognise that and think about it and not treat it as sort of almost a religious tenet that must be applied. So anyway, what's the sort of last comment to make is really on this book by In the Ruins of Neoliberalism by Wendy Brown. I agree with Carrick that our democracy uh, is in trouble around the world and certainly Wendy Brown would agree with that. But her sort of thesis in this book is that that the architects of neoliberalism, Hayek, Friedman, etc., it wasn't just about the deregulation of economies. They they reckon like Hayek reckon, uh, identified strong tensions. I'm reading from page seventy two here. Hayek identifies strong tensions between liberalism and democracy. Liberalism, he says, is concerned with limiting the coercive powers of all government, while democracy limits government only according to majority opinion. Liberalism is committed to a particular form of government, while democracy is committed to the people. So, above all, Hayek argues democracy and liberalism have radically different opposites. Democracy's opposite is authoritarianism. Concentrated, but not necessarily unlimited political power. Liberals, uh, liberalism's opposite is totalitarianism, complete control of every aspect of life. This makes authoritarianism potentially compatible with a liberal society. So it becomes reasonable for Hayek to join his fellow neoliberals in accepting authoritarians, authoritarianism's legitimacy in the transition to liberalism. And that's how they can justify the sort of thing that happened with General Pinochet. So from the neoliberal point of view, deposing a democratically elected leftist socialist president in Chile was the right thing to do, even though it led knowingly to an authoritarian dictator I mean, they knew what they were getting there, a military dictator in Latin America, come on. But that was acceptable because, for a start, the, the company that owned the copper mine would continue to own it, they thought, and, and other sort of individual sort of freedom of business and all the rest of it would be allowed under the Pinochet government. So, 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 so for Wendy Brown, the... The neoliberal experiment, or like, well, it's not an experiment, it's a practice that's going on and is adopted, has elevated the, the paramount importance of individual freedom. And, and really what happened was there was this amazing alliance has been created with libertarians, plutocrats, right-wing anarchists, zealous pro-lifers, homeschoolers. I mean, anti-vaxxers, you could add to that as well now. They all want freedom from society's regulations and constraints. And we are continually bombarded with the paramount supremacy of individual freedom and a downplaying of the role of society. And, and if you're doing that hard enough and often enough, people then come to the view, well, 
I don't want a democracy if it's going to impinge on my personal freedom. I'll have some other right-wing authoritarian regime, unelected, if that's what I need in order to have my personal freedom. And that's her thesis of how we've got there. So, so I thought that was an interesting theory. I think it's probably right. And that's probably me, done and dusted on my thoughts on democracy at this stage. Hope that was an entertaining rant for you. And be back next week with the panel. Bye for now.